Episode two of In the Know, and we are joined by Alice Kuo, who is an MBEF board member. And more importantly, Alice, please tell us what else you do. What is your day job? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm a professor of internal medicine and pediatrics and the chief of the medicine pediatric division at UCLA, which means that I oversee a group of doctors who treat both children and adults. I also am on faculty in the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. So I have a public health background as well. Well, so the good news is you haven't been busy at all in the last few months. <laughs> Tell me what we know or what you know about COVID-19 and, and kids right now. Yeah, so this worldwide pandemic has obviously been um, quite impactful for children. And I think from a child health policy perspective, um, we uh, child health advocates like myself and, and academics are concerned about the impact of prolonged closures on children's health, um, their mental health, their physical health, their educational opportunities, particularly in lower income families and, and environments. And so, um, you know, the pandemic has really highlighted a lot of disparities that we have in our society. Um, and unfortunately, they're particularly harmful for children. How have you played a role in terms of providing insight on children in, in schools and getting them back in school during this pandemic? Yeah, so um, I was uh, recently the president of our local American Academy of Pediatrics chapter, the AAP, and this is a professional organization of 67,000 pediatricians across the country. Here in Southern California, our chapter has about 1,500 um, pediatricians, and we sounded the alarm early, um, in early June uh, during the pandemic. I was concerned that the conversations about bringing children back to school were um, stalled, let's say. And uh, because I know how important education and schools are for children and families, um, it was very concerning. And so uh, the LA Times published a, a piece by our chapter um, raising the concern that pediatricians had that maybe the risk of staying out of school was greater than actually contracting COVID for children anyway. Um, and this was picked up nationally by the academy. And then um, this summer, obviously, uh, the issue became very politicized, unfortunately, um, because really this is about what's best for children and um, and their families, the you know the struggles that children and parents are having with prolonged school closures. What is the data telling us? We we see all these numbers, and there's so many different numbers that we see that it's hard to really yeah. kind of compartmentalize. Okay, this is how it affects me. This is how it affects our community and our kids. What does the data tell us about COVID and its effect on children as opposed to adults? Right. So we do know that children um, can contract SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, um, but it does definitely seem to be at a lower rate than in adults. So for whatever reason, that is still unclear whether it's an uh, immune response or a particular receptor. Children just don't seem to get um, the infection as much as adults do. They may have a higher viral burden, they have exposures as adults have, but they just don't seem to come down with the illness at the same rate that adults do. So 
you know, the one fortunate aspect, I guess, of the pandemic is that children do appear to be largely spared. Now, I don't want to minimize the, you know, the very real condition of the multi-system inflammatory um, syndrome that has occurred in children and is thought to be connected to the virus. Um, but it is a very, very small number of children that have um, suffered the consequences of that syndrome. And so for the vast majority, you know, greater than 95 percent, um, children who come in exposure of the virus have little to no symptoms. What have we learned from the, the other districts in the state or even out of the state that have actually opened up and, and sent kids to school during the pandemic? Yeah, so um, obviously not just in the U.S., but around the world, other countries have been dealing with this issue as well. And in parts of Asia and Australia, um, parts of Asia and Europe and Australia as well, um, schools have reopened and we've been able to kind of watch closely what their outcomes have been. Um, and it appears, even in a very uh, well-publicized um, study in, of, in South Korea from the summer, that um, the transmission in schools is a reflection of the community transmission that's happening outside the school. So, for example, if you're in a community where SARS-CoV-2 is very prevalent and being passed around where, you know, many people are getting COVID-19, then of course it will spill into the schools. And the vast majority of times it is an adult who is bringing it into the school setting and infecting children or infecting each other, infecting other adults. Um, and, and so from the studies that we see both internationally and in other parts of our country where other states have opened up, um, while there is transmission, you don't see rampant outbreaks. So with appropriate monitoring, safety guidelines, quarantining when appropriate, we're able to control outbreaks as we do in every other sector of society. And even more easily in a school because schools are so regulated. Schools have to follow rules, especially public schools. And so I do think that um, it is interesting based on my observation of different sectors in society that schools have a tremendous checklist, safety checklist protocol that they have to follow, um, even more so than other businesses like restaurants or fitness gyms and things like that. Um, and so really some of the safest places, I think, outside of your own home with your own family members would be a school campus um, as far as uh, the transmission of COVID-19 is concerned. There's obviously been a surge of COVID the last couple of weeks, and uh, I'm just curious, from your perspective, what do you think this means for MBUSD and the plans to bring on the TK through second grade students back in the very near future? Sure. Um, so it's less than ideal, but at the same time, I think our growing concern and the mounting evidence that children are not faring well with distance education, many children are not. Some children are doing okay, but many children are struggling. Um, that the priority to reopen schools um, has to be there. You know, the good news is, and I understand that people do not like, you know, safer at home orders, but at the same time, our numbers over the last week with the implementation of the safer at home order seem to be leveling off in LA County. You know, it's dynamic and changing day by day. So 
you know, I know in a few days when people are listening to this recording, that might not be the case, but right now it doesn't seem so bad. We peaked at 6,000 positive cases in the county, and now we're back down to about 4,800. It's still a lot over the lull in the early, in the later part of the summer, we were at like 1,000 cases in the county every day, positive cases every day. So, you know, the perspective is we're almost five times greater than we were um, a few months ago. So, you know, this is not necessarily the best time to reopen, but at the same time, we need to reopen. There, you know, the kindergartners, the young children, the children with special needs, the English language learners, they're all having difficulty um, for the most part, accessing education online. And this pandemic has lasted, you know, quite a while at this point. So there's been a whole semester lost and more if you count last spring of um, children whose educational outcomes are starting to fall behind. And as we know from education research, it is hard to catch up. So once we go back in person, all those kids who are behind will continue to be behind. And it's not as if the curriculum is going to compensate and say, well, we're just going to forget the last six months and reteach all of that. It's just going to keep going. And so this is, you know, unfortunately, a generation of children who have been placed at greater risk of future, you know, educational success because of these last um, nine months of the pandemic. Yeah, we're coming up almost on a, on a year, right, in, in a few months. Yeah. Uh, protocols calling for cleaning surfaces in between classes, among uh, other precautionary measures. Um, do you believe this is essential, given the, the CDC guidelines? Absolutely. Um, as I point out, like I've been working in our clinics at UCLA throughout the entire pandemic. Our offices are closed, but obviously our clinical services are have still been in place. And we do all our telehealth visits from our office, from our clinic. And so um, I've been seeing patients and we have implemented the same protocols in our clinic, you know, social distancing, doctors are no longer sharing offices, we all have to space out. Um, we have uh, cleaning staff, more cleaning than before, just wiping down surface, high touch areas, and everyone is wearing a mask. Um, and we have the added um, protection of wearing eye protection in the clinic as well, which I understand some schools and other um, sectors of society have started to implement as well. Um, and so when you look at the checklist um, that the Department of Public Health has put out for reopening schools, it is really comprehensive. Um, every school that has applied for a waiver to reopen and all the private independent schools um, you know, every school has had to make sure that they check off every box on that checklist before um, they are able to reopen. So if you take a look at that and see how much work has gone into preparing to reopen, I hope that parents can feel comfortable and confident that um, the district, especially MBUSD, has had the resources and has all the staff you know, thinking and working towards this now for several months. As a parent, what can we do to make sure that the transition from the online learning at home to being back in school works for our kids? 
So that's a really good question. Um, I've seen it with some of my patients who have gone back to preschool or kindergarten. Um, there's going to be a transition period, especially for children who have never been in the school setting. So even though the kindergartners have done kindergarten for the last three months online, it will not be the same when they go in person. It will be like the first day of kindergarten all over again because they will have to learn how to sit still and listen to the teacher. And this with the added, you know, challenges of wearing a mask and, and maybe the teacher not being as close. And so I think the important part is to have patience and to recognize that, you know, children need an adjustment period and that it might take a few weeks, um, which is why I do think it's not a bad idea that we're going back for a couple of weeks before the winter holidays and then there's a break so that these children can sort of ease back into school. And plus, it's a learning curve for the teachers and the staff as well because no one has ever taught in person in a pandemic. And so, you know, I know um, observing at our own health system, you know, nurses and other staff that back in March had to go back to work or had to resume patient care duties, that there was a little bit of anxiety. Um, you know, how am I going to do this? I'm not used to wearing a mask every single day. I think if we re remember back to how we felt in March and how new everything was, um, you can understand that anybody going back to the school campus will still have some of that anxiety. What I will say, having done site visits at other uh, institutions and organizations throughout the county is that um, the good news is that the anxiety sort of wears off after a week or so. Once you see that it's okay and you can do this and you become more focused on maybe the teaching and the needs of the students as opposed to, you know, what am I going to do with this this divider that's in front of me or or whatnot, then I think, you know, humans by definition are pretty adaptable and you get used to it, and then it becomes something that you've just always done and a, a new way of thinking. I, I know we're going in phases here, and I'm going to be a little selfish here for a minute because no I have a seventh grader and okay. a ninth grader, ah. and I'm not asking what's going to happen in Manhattan Beach. I'm mm -hmm. asking you what you would like to see happen based on your sure. professional opinion and experience in terms of getting all kids, all grade levels yeah. back in school for a period of time, whether it's hybrid or full-time. Right. Um, yes, I dream about this. <laughs> so, <laughs> you and me so both. I have, I have ideas. I have a seventh grader and a fourth grader, so I am still, I'm thinking about the secondary uh, students as well. So the situation that we're in right now is that under the governor's blueprint for a safer economy, we are in the purple tier or the widespread transmission of the virus tier. Um, that's the bottom tier, which means that, you know, we are in the most restrictive. Um, even though the state has said that the waiver application can apply from transition ki transitional kindergarten to sixth grade, LA County made the decision uh, back in September to only allow the waiver process to be from transitional kindergarten to second grade. So right now in the county, the schools that have been able to reopen are transition transitional kindergarten to second grade, plus 25% of your neediest students, right? So these are your English language learners, your special needs, or anybody who is not being served well through distance learning. 
Um, th that's all that's open right now, but that's actually over a thousand schools because LA County is large. Um, in January, if our numbers go down and we're not in a surge situation again, we're not in safer at home orders, I'm hoping and predicting that we will then mirror the state the, the state guidelines. Like LA County shouldn't be more, it doesn't have to be more restrictive. From what I'm hearing at um, the leadership level, there's a recognition that, you know, we're in the widespread tier and we may stay there for a while because we're a large county. 10 million people is just a lot. And so in January, what I'm hoping is that all the schools that have had waivers for TK to two will then be allowed to reopen TK to six with like an FYI to the county. This is what they have indicated that they would like to do as well. So as soon as maybe the end of January or February, all the elementary schools should be reopened with the conditions permitting if our numbers are good. So I planted the seed at LA County Department of Public Health that sixth grade in most uh, public school districts is middle school. And under the waiver, you can open sixth grade. So technically, we could apply for a waiver for MBMS, for example, to just bring back sixth grade. That's a third of the population. And you could argue that the sixth graders, I know everyone wants eighth graders because it's graduation, but the sixth graders have even never been on the campus. Mm -hmm. So I almost think it's more important for them to have some in-person experience. It'd be hard to have that for the first time as a seventh grader, right? The whole point of sixth grade is sort of Easing your way in, sure. Exactly. So I would love to see us have the opportunity to maybe bring back that sixth grade under the current waiver. For now, that's all we can do because the, we are under the guidelines of California State. And until the state guidelines change, we can't do more than that. We can be more restrictive. We can't be more permissive. So right now, it, you know, it would be great to focus on bringing the full gamut of students who can come back legally under the current guidelines. The promise of the vaccine is the game changer, right? So Pfizer approved, got FDA emergency use authorization for its vaccine last month. And distribution is uh, set to start at Cedars-Sinai for healthcare workers in a couple of weeks. Moderna is the second company, um, and they just submitted their application for FDA emergency use authorization uh, maybe last week, today, <laughs> very recently. Right. And so hopefully they that vaccine could be available as early as the end of next month, by the end of the calendar year. With the advent of the vaccine... Um, I think that it is the light at the end of the tunnel because that's what it takes to achieve herd immunity. Um, you know, enough of the population having some immunity so that we don't overwhelm our hospitals and maybe people will get sick from COVID-19, but they won't die. And that's really the goal of the vaccine. Um, because we're in Los Angeles and the government has prioritized, the federal government has prioritized Los Angeles and New York City as two of the maybe worst parts of the country to get the vaccine and the monoclonal antibody. We also have the monoclonal antibody that President Trump 
received when he got the virus. So that is also coming to Los Angeles and we will start distributing that at UCLA for patients who are in a high risk category and are positive for the virus. So these are all great scientific mm -hmm. advances that are changing the game, right? We'll have a vaccine soon, we'll have treatment soon. And so I'm very hopeful that the pandemic will be over by next summer. Last question, mm -hmm. because I think this is really important when it comes to the vaccine in terms of how it's going to be distributed and who it's going to be distributed to. Yes. Healthcare workers, high risk patients. Would you recommend that that educators maybe are third in line on that list? And then that would allow us to open up maybe sooner than anticipated. Sure. I actually think that there have been attempts to put educators first in line with the healthcare workers. So essential workers should be in line first. Um, I think, so this is, you know, we have had a thorny history with vaccine acceptance in this country in recent years. Sure. So there's been, you know, quite a bit of vaccine hesitancy and I expect that there would be with a brand new vaccine. Um, so there's gonna have to be a lot of education, um, not only among educators, but among high-risk populations, among low-income populations, among Black Americans who have been very suspicious of being experimented on. There's a lot of history around um, new experimental treatments. Um, however, the data looked good, and I do think that the efficacy rates of these vaccines, over 90%, some as high as 95%, is surpasses anything that anyone would have even dreamed of in the summer. And if that's really the case, then I think, you know, public health officials have a lot of work on their hands to be able to distribute the vaccine to all the populations that need it um, in a way that is equitable, but also safe and, you know, and to convince people to get the vaccine. Um, I hope that teachers and educators are prioritized, but I also hope that they take advantage of the opportunity if the vaccine is offered to them. All right. Well, a lot of questions still to be answered, but um, Dr. Kuo, we appreciate your time um, as a MBEF board member um, and an expert in this field. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Absolutely.